This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? More dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, the Triple R's weekly foray into the personal and private lives of the movers and shakers, the tinkerers and thinkerers who are creating a new and improved human narrative for an exciting yet uncertain future. Bushy's my name, and regular co-conspirator, uh, the always new and improved human narrative himself, Adam Grubb. <laughs> hey, Bushy. How you be? It's a very good intro, by the way. It's Thank you. Very tight. It was, and it was nice that the intro worked this week. We had the computer glitch last week. I really miss the intro when we don't get it. It's all improved now. I like I liked your um, acoustic rendition, though. Yeah, <laughs> oh, room for improvement. Uh, joining us on rotation is the ever lovely yet musically fussy Katie <laughs> Dundino Dundas. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Bushy. Dun- Dundino doesn't really stick, that does it? Oh, do you know there's been a few Clara McCormack people who have tried <laughs> to get the Dundino nickname to stick and it will not stick. It okay. will not stick. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, in the studio, as always, pushing the buttons, a smooth operator of the panel is Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? I'm well, thank you. Evening all. Uh, tonight is going to be a cracker as we again tap into the uh, the genius of the Central Victorian Northwest, and I'm going to hand over to uh, a little bit of bias there. I'm going to hand over to Adam Grubb to introduce our guest this evening. Yes, yeah, so we've got a return guest, Meg Ullman. She is an essential component of the artistic entity known as the Artist as Family, which includes her poet partner Patrick Jones, their kids. Zeph and Woody and the Terrier called Zero and we had Meg and Patrick on the show last year talking about their epic family cycling tour of the East Coast which I think went for about over a year uh, with the aforementioned full family including uh, Zero, the, the dog and they were discussing their book fantastic book all about it, The Art of Frugal Travel but their life at home in Dalesford as we follow them on their blog is almost as interesting and innovative as their life on the road. So we thought we'd get Meg back on the show to discuss that and uh, we'll also talk to her a little later in the show about her community work with Relocalise Hepburn. But welcome back to Greening the Apocalypse, Meg Ullman. Thank you so much. Um, lovely to hear your voice. So, ah, me too. <laughs> um, after... After the the massive bike ride, which uh, you document in the book, uh, which is full of adventure, but also a fair dose of hardship and challenges, it wasn't actually that long after you came back to your home in Dalesford that you took off again on another big bike ride to promote the book. Was was the day-to-day life getting you down? Um, yes, coming back after our 14-month adventure on the road was really difficult. I re- none of us really wanted to be back here, but we had a teenager about to start high school um, and we'd rented out our house and our tenants were leaving, so we had to come back and just sort out a few things. Um, so we wrote the book 
um, about our trip in nine months and then we're back on the road for three months on our pedal-powered book tour. So, yeah, we were really keen to get back on the road. It was very liberating to just take off again. Uh, what, what, uh, when you did the bike, the bike book tour, what parts of uh, the country did you take in? Um, as in where did we travel to? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we went along the east coast and inland, just yeah, just just up from our home in Dalston in central Victoria um, to Sydney, sort of inland to Sydney, and then up the coast uh, to uh, a com- indigenous community called Hopevale, which is just north of Cooktown. So um, yeah, Cape York Peninsula. Excellent. Oh, sorry that that was in the book itself. But no, sorry. When you um, got back and you launched the book and you did the book tour, you didn't. Did you cover anywhere near the same miles, or where did you end up going? Oh. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood. Uh, no, we just went to um, the Blue Mountains. Beautiful. Just to the Blue Mountains. Just to the Blue Mountains on a bike, that's all. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so you've been back a while now um, and have. you've been settled in. Um, there was, uh, throughout the book, you touch on a, a bunch of the new skills you were learning while you are out on the road as, as just part of everyday life. Um, how many of those sorts of things have you guys, uh, that you've learned while you're away, you, you're maintaining now in your everyday life? Oh, that's a good question. I think some things we've definitely maintained. We've definitely, I think that we took foraging, we were, we were, in terms of our um, foraging diet before we left, we had about 40 or so um, wild autonomous species that we were including in our diet. And we took that to a whole other level because that was the point of our, our big cycle trip, uh, which was just to document as many of the free foods that we could along the way. Um, so naturalised naturalised foods are weeds and um, bush tuckers and more more bats than the dumpster diving aspect, uh, mm. although we did some of that too and we ate some roadkill and other such things. Um, so we definitely came back with those knowledges and that determination to keep eating like that. Um, also because we had no money, so it was kind of <laughs> a lifestyle choice that we'd made. Um, but in terms of other things, um, are a little bit trickier. We really loved not living with electricity. And we thought about just coming home and just, you know, not turning on our power at all. We've got solar panels and not even having that. Um, but, you know, we've, we've come back and we do use electricity. So some things we're steadfast and some things we've relented a little bit. Indeed. Are you having, um, you find yourself drawn outside to have a campfire a lot more often, even if uh, the weather's not necessarily conducive to that? Or Well, we're a, we don't have a car, so we're a walking and biking family. So we're kind of out and we're a gardening family so, and a foraging family. So we are outside all the time. Mm. Um, we're also homeschooling our two kids, four and 14. Um, so anyone with kids knows that um, it's, it's much better to have them outside there. I think it's just much more of a conducive space to learning. Excellent. Let's come, it would be great to talk to you a little bit more about, well, it could actually be a big part of this next question, but it um, be great to hear a little bit more about the homeschooling. But what is an, what's an average day in the life of the artist of family for yourself, Patrick oh, and, uh, and Zeph and Woody? And zero. Um, I don't know that there is an average day. Um, so, um, so Zeph, who's 14, um, he, we sent out um, recently, or well, a couple of months ago, an email to every permi producer, artist, grower, maker, doer, um, saying that he's available 
to come and help out on projects with you. So he loves being physical. He loves learning. He loves building. He loves working with his hands. So he's been doing some really remarkable things. So he's kind of has his own schedule. He does, um, you know, some full days with people out on their farms. He's helping to build various things. Yeah, so he does that. And the rest of us kind of just... I don't know what we do. We, we're in the garden. Um, we're big community gardeners, so we're um, working on community garden projects. We're foraging. We're fermenting. We're working on... We're writing essays. We're corresponding with people. We're working... I work two days a week for... I'm in the office of Holmgren Design for David Holmgren and Sue Dennis. Um, we're bike riding. We're... I don't know, in, enjoying life, enjoying living slowly and prioritising time over money. It sounds absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I'm just wondering, I mean, do you have a mortgage that you have to pay? We do. And we do, do, do you find time, how do you find time to make money to to pay it? <laughs> oh, just bits and bobs, just things trickle in. You know, if you find, find that if you do things that you love, somehow the money just finds <laughs> finds its way. We get paid in lump sums for things and then we'll go a couple of months with not having a lot. And, yeah, it just, it just works out. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> just we manage. You mentioned Zeph is out and about learning skills. So there was actually an article about him I saw in The Age a couple of weeks ago and it suggested that he was really... St- not enjoying schoolwork in in the book the art of frugal travel he's very much a bit of a contrarian character against his hippie parents who wants to stop at kfc all the time while you guys are <laughs> hitting the um roadkill and the organic oats and in the panniers but how are things going since you guys settled and and tell us about his latest project and and why he why he took him out of school so we took him out of. So he's in year eight um, at a was in year eight um, at a school in a very strict uh, all boys school in Ballarat that he chose to go to. Um, pretty one of the high school experience, um, and it's also very sport focused. And he's exceptional at sports, so he was really drawn to that school. And he just wasn't working out. I think because he's such a physical kid, being inside all the time, and having had his mind blown wide open with all the different people that we've met on our on our cycle trips and just meeting people and just being alive in the world and then having to sit down being told what to do by people who ultimately don't really care about the outcomes they're just in it for the job and in it for the paycheck and that really didn't sit right with him and he his behavior was you know he was playing up and just saying to us i'm i'm not happy this is not this is not working out so where we were patrick and i were really pleased actually because we didn't want him to go there and we were hoping that because he was um homeschooled for most of his primary school so we were hoping that he would return to that and he has and it's just i think the Going to school is a bit monotonous for him, and now he's outside, he's in the world, and we're calling it the you know the school of life, the, the school of community, because he's out there working with people, and I think that's the key for this stage as a fourteen-year-old is having mentors, particularly male mentors, for him, who can just show him how they live. It's a you know school of humanity where he's just just watching people and learning from them and you know sometimes he'll come home from days out and he'll say I don't really want to work with that person because you know whatever the reason may be and he's learning what he likes and what he doesn't like and that's helping define him as a young man and we're really encouraging that obviously 
so when we took it, decided to take him out of school, initially it was just going to be for six weeks. And he, because he does love building, we had the idea to build a tiny house. Um, so we have... It's kind of kind of like our version of Woofers, which we call SWATs, which is social warming artist and permaculturalist. And we have um, people come to stay with us for a week or more, and they work with us in the garden or building or foraging or fermenting or just hanging out with us, um, just chatting and swapping skills and life stories. And they work with us in the mornings, and then they have their own time in the afternoon for their own creative practice. So we had one swap come and stay here for a while, a uh, called, guy called James, and he really wanted some practical skills. He had, he'd been a lawyer, very successful lawyer, but he had no hands-on practical skills. So he <laughs> approached us and said, will you take me on? So we said, yes, sure, come come stay. So he did, and he got along with us um, really well. So we invited him, and we took Zephyr out of school for six weeks, and they were going to build this um tiny house which they did and it's called the kumquat so that was really great for so patrick um, my partner who um has built many dwellings in the past he was sort of their mentor but really he stepped back and the opportunity for zephyr and james to engage and zephyr's really young and gung-ho and full of creative energy and james is a bit more circumspect and um just quiet and likes to think about things before he acts and that was a really good dynamic just to see how they got along and also you know as a male as a mentor and there's 14 years between them so Seth 14 James 28 and just to see their friendship and their building skills and their confidence on the building site really increase was just wonderful to see it was really exciting and for Zeph to have the and James too but for Zeph to have those skills and now he can go into the community and say right I actually know what I'm doing you know and I can he's talking the other day about setting up a tiny house building company or whatever he 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 decides to do he's got those skills to fall back on so that's really exciting to watch that is quite fantastic. I was just going to quickly touch on you know, the fact that there was a short video that was put up. I think Milkwood Permaculture put it up and it had a bit of time-lapse footage of the tiny house going up. And, and it's been a really, mm. really wet winter out that way. Um, and so there's a determination, <laughs> wasn't there? Yes, they worked through the rain and the snow. They were really gung-ho and they did it. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic because that puts to bed the idea. Because kids at that age often sort of get canned by adults. Oh, you know, they can't focus and they can't do this and won't do that. But then it, sort of as you're pointing out, when there's something that they want to do and they're going to learn from and they're going to have fantastic experiences and some good personal growth, there's sort of nothing that will stop them, is there? Absolutely. And I think a big part of it, we've really seen Zephyr self, at school, his self-confidence just go backwards. And I think part of it was we took away his screens at school he was so before he went to this school he was reading and he was engaged and then as soon as he went to that school he didn't pick up a book they didn't have books at that school they just were given an ipad and that just was really detrimental to his love of learning and his his wanting to be engaged and wanting to be wanting to know stuff and so we've really seen that return tenfold now that he's um back in the back in the school of community Mm. Um, well, while we're on this topic, even though we're indulging, it's really interesting. I, I imagine, and myself included, people are wondering, like, I, is there bureaucracy to homeschool? And are you 
uh, sh- should you legally and or is there any things around like academic content that you're supposed to cover? So we're really fortunate in Victoria that we don't have any any guidelines. We had to register him as a homeschooler and that is it. So, you know, Patrick and I are in the um, very privileged position of both being, you know, university educated. So we, are, we feel very confident that we can guide his education. Mm-hmm. Um, but in New South Wales, for example, they're very, very strict and they have... Um, they have um, people from the education department come to people's homes and test the kids and they have to see where their desk is and see that it's an appropriate learning space and yeah I think it's very very strict and it puts a lot of people off which is which is their aim but you know from my perspective that's a real shame. Triple R not for everyone for anyone. You're on Green in the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, and we are talking to Meg Allman, who is co-author of The Art of Frugal Travel, which documents her family's exciting adventures up the East Coast and back on bicycles with um, a teen, a terrier, and a toddler. <laughs> and we've been talking about what life has been like since uh, coming back to the settled existence. Uh, I'm really interested in... Going back even a, a step further, Meg, because you come from a city background and a lot of your uh, blog talks about the real positive aspects of li- living in the country and being enmeshed in this uh, community and all the support networks. But the flip side of that is that there's the cliche almost, and you can tell me if it's true or not, of the parochialism and the uptight cultural conservatism and the gossip networks and that kind of lack of social freedom. So... How, how have you found that transition yourself and as a family? Um, can I just quickly correct you on the title of our book, which is what The Art of Free Travel. Oh, you sorry. You said The Art of Free Travel. It's The Art of Free Travel. My apologies. That's okay. Um, I think we, we, wherever you live, whether it's a small town or a city, you're going to have the good and the bad. And I think for me personally... Daleford and Hepburn, this whole region, is so rich um, in biodiversity and I think so rich in um, community participation that there's so much going on and so many wonderful things to be involved in that, yes, there's the parochialism and, yes, you know, um, it's a tourist town and there's so many cars on the weekends and, you know, um, to go out for a drink or anything is so expensive in this town because of the tourism dollars. Mm. Um, and we've got a friend who lives on a street and he's the only resident on his street because the rest of it's empty because it's just weekenders. It's just B&Bs for weekenders. So, you know, yes, there's the downside. Um, but for me, the, the good definitely outweighs outweighs the bad. And this year's been a particularly cold and wet uh, winter. So I was cursing the fact that we live here because of that reason. Um but for me, it, it's home. It's really home. And before Dalesford, I'd never found home before. Yes, I grew up in Melbourne. I travelled a lot. And I was always looking for somewhere to put my roots down. But, yeah, I, I feel lucky that I, I live here for so many different reasons. Um, one, of the re- one of the reasons that we did decide to go away on our big trip, for various reasons, but one of the important ones was that we had volunteer burnout. Because there are so many great organizations, different not-for-profit community groups to be um, be a part of and to put our energies towards, um, that was 
we just gave ourselves away, really. So to be able to step back so other people would step forward um, was just a real gift to the community, but as well as to ourselves, just to just to be able to just to walk away and say, I can't, you know, have, have handover and make sure there were people to fill our roles, but just to be able to step back was really important for us. And so now coming home, one of the tricky things is learning to say no. I'm still learning that one. <laughs> and Meg, did you find that people did step into your roles or did some of the initiatives that you were involved with pre-trip um, fall over without your involvement in them? They didn't fall over, but they... They just stayed afloat. That, that nobody really took took things on, but they just sort of ticked away nicely. Um, but now we've come back and we've got renewed we've renewed enthusiasm for out the projects that we were. And I think going away also gave us perspective of what we want to be what we want to be giving our energy towards, what we want to be spending our our time on, and it's definitely the things that we can do with our kids. And I think the Dalesford Community Food Gardens. Um, has just, is just fantastic for families because it's, you know, the kids can just play and learn just by watching the adults um, participate. And also being part of organisations that don't have meetings is really important for us because I don't want to be sitting in a meeting just how boring. I want to be doing and I, and I like to be part of community groups that are non, non-membership just so we don't have to have meetings. <laughs> Well, one of those groups you are involved with is the Hepburn Relocalisation Network, which is... Well, maybe you could start by just defining the term uh, relocalisation and, and some of the thinking behind it, because it is part of a broader movement. It is. So relocalisation is a strategy to build communities based on the production of local food, local energy and local goods. So... Um, Patrick um, has got a really beautiful term, which I'm going to borrow now, which is to be accountable mammals of place. And I think when you live somewhere and you don't know where your food comes from and you don't know where your energy resources come from, then when you outsource that, I think that that's just you're you're outsourcing it to violent models, really, because you're not accountable for that. So you don't know what's going on. So I think that relocalization is empowering people. Um, And it's much more grassroots than the current government model, which is top-down governments, and so to empower people to to know where their food comes from and to, you know, whether it's to have solar panels or we're lucky here that we've got um, Australia's first community-owned wind farm, Hepburn Wind. So just to know where your energy comes from, I think is, for me, very satisfying. And and Hepburn Relocalisation Network, um, it's a community group based in this area, um, that recognises the realities of peak oil and climate change and are responding by raising awareness about how these issues affect our community and how we can respond to these realities with a, with a positive plan for the future. That sounds, that sounds fairly amazing. Meg, one of the things I'm a bit uh, curious to hear from you, uh, Hepburn and Dalesford area, um, every relocalisation network around the country or around the world would have different uh, niche aspects to it because of place. So Dalesford and Hepburn has a, a background of uh, Swiss-Italian settlers um, and it's got an agrarian background of various farmers and things like that. It's also the uh, health and wellness uh, people have been up there for a long long time so could you give us a little bit of a a broad look at the the people that are involved in your group specifically what where they're coming from and and the like 
Yeah, sure. And um, so one of the things that I really like about Dalesford is that it's got... Oh, it's old Dalesford, so it's got old farming families, and as you said, it's got the the gold the gold history as well as the um, the original um, far, uh, yeah, farmers, I guess. And it's also got lots of new new life and new families and modern back to the landers coming here who are attracted to the the I don't want to say energy of the place, but because that's a bit new agey, but it is the <laughs> it's, a, it's the vibrancy I think that really, and it you know has got the wellness aspect. Um, but that's also jobs for people um, and tourism, and that's also jobs. So Hepburn Relocalisation Networks, HRN for short, was started about eight or nine years ago by Sue Dennett, who's David Holmgren's partner, and Maureen Corbett, both community elders. It's part of the transition town, you know, the global movement, um, but they decided not to be part, not to call themselves Transition Dallas or Transition Hepburn. They wanted to be a bit more independent. And who comes along to our things? I think we have so many diverse ways of engaging with people that there's always something for somebody who wants to come along. Um, so the kinds of things we do, we have different events and workshops and film nights. We have community dinners and solstice parties. A couple of weeks ago, we brought um, formidable, formidable vegetable sound system. Um, we were the first stop on their vegetable oil-powered album tour. We, had um, a, we, we were lucky to have a live performance by Charlie McGee in the studio a couple of weeks ago. Ah, they're so wonderful. So my four-year-old Woody and I also went down to Melbourne for their Melbourne launch um, and we saw some people eating some hot chips and he said, can we get some hot chips because then Charlie will be able to put some of the oil in his van. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that is such a good reason. (laughs) That's a great reason to get hot chips. I guess I was just wondering if, um, you know... I don't want to sort of put a stereotype on there, but does your group uh, manage to attract maybe your old, maybe traditional conservative old farmer who's sort of starting to scratch his head a bit and and think, you know, things aren't quite as they seem? Has has that type of person been drawn in much? Um, Occasionally, occasionally. And I think that the old farmer scratching their head might come along to... um, We had a winter pruning Workshop. So, you know, we had a, a few old cockies come along to that. Um, and then we had a soap making course. So we had lots of young, young people come along to that. We also have the, uh, it's called Dalesford Culture Clubs. Um, it's a monthly meetup for fermenters of all passions and experience. So I think some people are going to be drawn to that. We have film nights, films to inspire change. That, and one of the things that I really like about HRN is that it focuses on the positive. Um, we wouldn't, for example, show the horror movie The World According to Monsanto because that's so depressing, but we would show something that's really positive to try to get people just to think about positive modes of action and community resilience that we can build on together. Um. Meg, does relocalise Hepburn work at all with council? This, the key ingredient is the people, but sometimes yep. you know it's he- councils can be helpful, and other times perhaps less helpful. Yes, they can. They can. Um, and yes, we do work with council. We, well, they, for example, whenever we want to hire a hall to have an event, they give it to us for free, which is very generous. Um, and we've worked on them. With, there was an EDAC, which is an Energy Descent Action Plan, which we worked with council towards just looking at um, where council spends the most money and where they spend the most resources, just, you know, um, just in general, and trying to put a more um, sort of green overlay 
on top of that. So um, that was really positive as well. So working with them, you know, we I was talking to Sue today saying that we would really like to work more with council, um, but I think that that will come. And I think that as cheap oil becomes less prevalent and I think that as you know if the um, the housing bubble housing market takes a takes a nosedive then I think that council will be looking at ways to build its community resilience so I feel like if we can build the skills and you know keep council in the loop so to speak of what's happening then you know we've got something really good to build on with them. Mm. We had Jess Christensen Frank's last year was it mm. from co-design come in and talk to us about their neighborhood project and how they're working with council to help community groups get ideas off the ground so there's definitely a change in attitude from council as to helping grassroots projects you know absolutely mm. i mean what that's right and last week there was the um mav which is like the local governance local council governance group we actually um, yeah we had um andrew lucas on okay. in studio a couple weeks ago talking about okay. that so he, you know that the theme for the conference was local food yes. so i think that you know they're starting to they're starting to wake up and realize you know that where where their power is as well to be able to bring community on meg we should thank you for being a marvelously accountable mammal of place <laughs> and uh <laughs> And where can people follow your continuing adventures as the artist as family? Um, so on the artist as family blog. So if you just Google artist as family, um, you'll find us. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And um, and if you want to find out more about um, um, Hepburn Relocalisation Network, if you just Google relocalise Hepburn. And people will be able to find a copy of your wonderful book, The Art of Free Travel, at the Artist of Family blog. So thank you again for being such a wonderful guest on Green the Apocalypse, uh, Meg Ullman. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. I'm Joel Salison, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. So, we have a new section of the show, and it's called Wild Card. And today's wild card heading is, yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, but. So, <clears throat> I have been inspired and fascinated and interested in listening to all of these wonderful people that we have, we interview on the show. Um, lots of them living alternative types of lifestyles and participating in local economies and bartering and exchanging and living a fun, different lifestyle to the majority of people. Mm. And what interests me about generally life and the work that I do is finding scalable solutions for fixing stuff because we're in a bit of a mess, really. Mm. So... I want to ponder on the types of lifestyles that these people are living, Meg included, and other people that are living on the edges and doing different types of stuff, and consider, are they scalable? How do they apply to other people living in a more traditional way, like me and my friends? <laughs> and what does that look like? So some observations on this type of lifestyle and the type of people we talk to. So observation number one, 
is that you live in Castlemaine or similar. <laughs> and uh, doesn't have to be, you know, Castlemaine, Hepburn, Macedon. Hillsville. Heel, yeah, one of those places that are filled with people like that. Mm. What about all the other places that aren't? And it is a physical community that we're talking about because it often involves an exchange of service, an exchange of goods. People have to be close to each other to live in this way. Okay, second observation is, number one, well, you have a large network of friends. And the second part of that is that large network of friends live like you to be able to exchange the goods and services and, you know, share whatever it is you're doing. Either that or you do it all yourself and burn out, like Meg had mentioned. Mm. Uh, observation number three is you don't tend to work nine to five and you probably don't commute. So mm. you tend to have more time available to dedicate to doing this type of stuff, to sharing and to leading a creative lifestyle and to, you know, doing the things that are often enjoyable, making your own food, growing your own food. I mean, going back to work after having Tom, my garden, you know, is just it's just like feral now. <laughs> I've just got parsley everywhere. I used to grow a lot of my own stuff and now I just, time is just gone. So, and I, I know that all, a lot of my, well, most of my friends live like I do. We're really time poor. We have jobs we really enjoy. So it's not a case of, you know, working on a grindstone to pay a mortgage. It's working because we really, really enjoy what we do. But it doesn't leave a lot of time left over to participate in this type of different lifestyle that leaves maybe a smaller imprint or allows just the type of things that we talk about on the show time to happen. Mm. So what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts, Adam? Well, I, I wasn't sure if, you, you know, your, your dot points of your observations could be equally a recipe list if you want to make the, a change yeah. to something with more time. Not this everybody can move to these. This is what kind of annoys me. It's like you can't just move to be close to those types of people who do those types of things. Well, I think that's just the doesn't least, make sense. That's the least important part of it. What is the most important one? If I, Well, I'm not sure what what your goals are, but and everyone has different ones, but if if you're saying that this type of lifestyle where you have lots of free time and time to work in community is is a goal that you're into, then for a lot of people that means trying to find alternatives to nine to five jobs, which means learning to live more frugally. And there's a feedback cycle there as you get more community and favour networks and informal economy that makes that um, more doable. And yeah, I... uh, often it's it's a case of where you've got kids and you have a partner and one of you wants to change and the other one doesn't where you have this really difficult stumbling block but for in a lot of other cases it's just a it's a mental hurdle that you need to get over that this is possible that i can do this and uh and yeah part of that is picking up those skills of frugality where what types of skills are those adam grubb Oh, they're they're vast and um, but mostly enjoyable. I'm I'm going to bite my tongue here because I'm going to slip into promoting a book I've been working on if I talk anymore. But uh, which seems a bit cheeky. It's not cheeky. I want to know. Like, okay. yeah, it's great fun picking tomatoes together and making sauce and having a nice chat. But you have to have time to grow the tomatoes. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it's so I've. I uh, had to appear to my co-author, Annie Racer Rowland, who phoned me yesterday with a observation that she finds a real 
difference between those kind of agrarian skills that do tie you to place and have just as many. You know, I keep chooks. Got a got a garden, mostly not annuals because they take more. That which is your veggie garden, mostly longer lived plants, which you can go away and leave. But the chooks, they're a ball and chain. Do you know my chick, my chicken, Madge, just yeah. disappeared the other day. Oh. There's not even well, a feather in Bush sight. Bush is going to have a story about that. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of things that um, Megan Patrick were talking about, where you learn to live by your own wits with the with foraging skills and so building skills. Can you imagine everybody? Right, we're talking scalable solutions here. Well, no, I'm not. I'm talking about how you, listener, can personally escape the rat race, and not everybody has to do it. Like you said, a lot of people are perfectly happy in their jobs, and that's fine. Okay. But if, but if you if you're someone that's like been listening to these people, and and how can I be like that? Well, there's definitely steps forwards and sometimes they just require a little bravery but there's um you know mm. we, i think it's fair to say both you and i bushy mm. work very few conventional hours i mean i end up spending a lot of time working mm. because, but a lot of it is things that are in this gray area between paid and unpaid work and yep. volunteer work and you know doing the radio all mm. the rest but uh it's it's so doable and possible and the to escape those, you know, what is essentially a trap of mortgage and long work hours at a job that for most people they're not lucky like you, you Kate, where it's not fulfilling. And not only that, you take stress home. You're working in your head when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but that's not to say that every that this alternative lifestyle or what it, it not lifestyles, it's very plural, uh, is for everybody and, and, and not without its challenges. And Bushy, I understand you had a really fairly rough weekend with your homestead style back to the land of lifestyle. Yeah, well, how I live now is not unlike how I lived as a kid. Um, in that, you know, we had some land around us and we lived out in the country and we knew the neighbours and talked with the neighbours and all those sorts of things. So it was a good community and we had a lot of basic hands-on skills. I was saying to a friend of mine the other day who came to work with me that I needed a bit of um, muscle on a job and um, we were saying that how uh, very surprising it is for both of us if we occasionally meet people who can't actually operate a shovel very well because you do... You know, Adam, especially I imagine in permablitzes, you'd meet people very new to sort of manual um, skills mm. and they're stumbling on something as simple as uh, digging a hole or turning soil. Um, but, yeah, look, the life that I lead now is one that's been very deliberately chosen probably over most of my life where I could do it. And on the weekend, uh, the chickens came home to roost, so to speak. On Saturday, I'd sort of had a slow morning, going to the farmer's market, was doing all that stuff, and I was just hanging out with my daughter in the house and uh, having a bit of food on the couch and and my son came home from a party and went straight out to check on his chooks which is what he does all the time and he came screaming back into the house and he was uh, he was just in a state of panic as dad 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 there's something really weird going on in the chook pen so i ran out just in a pair of socks and the first thing i noticed was half a dozen dead chooks and then I very quickly noticed that a really mangy, scraggly fox was inside the chook. This is at one in the afternoon on a Saturday. And um, so what had I had intended to have this fantastic afternoon of like turning the compost heap over and mucking about with a few things and building some seed raising trays that I've been meaning to get onto and a whole bunch of stuff. And so what happened in, instead was that my Saturday afternoon involved actually having to catch a fox and having to put it to death without i didn't have i actually felt very exposed not having like a firearm at that point you know, <laughs> now no that i i can i'll own that and i'll completely own up to that i had this thing captured and cornered inside the chicken coop and i looked at it it was a pretty knackered fox it was coated in mange and it just looked almost dead anyway 
And I suddenly realised that I had no really easy way of ending this thing. And I made three or four phone calls to people I knew had firearms and they, they were nowhere around. And so at that exact moment, my good friend Lindsay just happened to show up. And so her and I captured this thing and we had to use a, a far less pleasant way to dispatch of it. Um, then I had to spend the rest of the afternoon uh, digging holes around the place to bury dead chickens near fruit trees. And then I had to spend some time pressure washing the chicken coop because I wanted to get all this mange and shit off. And I, it, it was just this horrible thing. And, me, and then I had to get my two ducks that had been attacked but had survived. I had to wash them in warm water and clean oh. their cuts. And then overnight one of them died anyway from shock. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And this is a sad story. It's a shit story. And <laughs> at, at, by the end of it all, I, I literally sat on the edge of the bath, um, running a bath for myself, and I just cried and I cried and I cried. Um, and then the next day I had all these other things to do and I was trying to move some ne- some netting off some veggies so I could get in and do some weeding because of all the rain and the net got tangled and then I cut myself um, on some wire and I had that sort of moment where I thought, God, if I was trying to promote this life to someone, saying to them, you know, you just do this, it's more relaxing and it's more fun and it is most of the time more relaxing and more fun. If anyone watching me that day could have been forgiven for just thinking fuck that mm-hmm. you know so it was it was a heavy weekend but you know so let that be a warning to anybody thinking of this yeah well, it's, <laughs> alternative it, lifestyle it's wonderful choice. and it's beautiful and it's simple and i'm you know my heart wells with joy more often than not mm. but when it turns mm-hmm. crap as it did yeah on the weekend it turns really crap yeah i wonder outside of that kind of agrarian hands on the land type of lifestyle Mm. if we were to translate the localization sharing aspects outside of chickens and growing food and things into the city to give people more option to live in a different type of way um i wonder what that would look like and just another observation i've had just having recently had a child is working part-time is fantastic but none of the men will ask So Mm. there really needs to be a cultural shift because then the women end up looking after the kids and having no time left. So men, if you're out there and you want to work part-time, go in tomorrow and ask. Indeed. Ask for a one day less at least. Mm. Um, I'd like to thank Meg Ullman for getting on the phone to us this evening. She was wonderful. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence. Um, Big hugs done, Dino. Loved catching up with you every uh, second week. Uh, Adam, what's coming up next week? We're going to have a very sensible conversation with the very sensible Elliot Fishman of the Institute of Sensible Transport. And we'll be talking about... He's actually a very fascinating guy who uh, is very uh, focused on all sorts of alternative forms of transport. But it'll be interesting to try and see you and Sarah be sensible for an hour. I can do it. Just, <laughs> well, just one hour, mind you. Bushy's been my name. We will see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.